Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, we're joined by Michelle D., one of my coworkers who suggested tonight's case after watching The Staircase on Netflix. The Staircase provided a pro-defense look at the state of North Carolina versus Michael Ivor Peterson. Tonight, we'll be talking with Michelle about the documentary versus the facts that were left out. We'll also talk about the controversy surrounding SBI analysts Dwayne Deaver, and the post-conviction claim that resulted in a new trial. Finally, we'll talk about Peterson's 2017 Alfred plea and his impact on pop culture through parody series, Lifetime movies, and an upcoming HBO Max series. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael and Michelle. Good evening, Lisa. Hi. And uh, just uh, trust me, I'm going to get your names mixed up, screwed up (laughs) a couple of times tonight. They are coming close to each other. And I've also got to give you credit, Michelle. You You do what I do. I text Lisa whenever I'm watching something good on Netflix or Hulu and be like, hey, why don't we cover this? And then the bad part about it, Michelle, usually she'll text me back and she'll be like, well, that one's not so good. And I'm like, oh, man, I get so excited. <laughs> yeah, I think, or it's uh, an unsolved case. Yeah, I think I've I've, yes. I've kind of cornered Lisa in the lunchroom a handful of times, like, do you have an episode on this? Have you looked into this further? <laughs> she's, she's looked into a couple of great things for me. It's been interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, we'll have to uh, talk about the one from your hometown. Yeah, that point. one. That one. That one is not a. You know, that one is not contested. Or, but it is. It's. It's a bad one. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Did you ever look? I was curious if you ever looked into that, uh, the well, like proceedings on that. 
No, I didn't find that out, but I will get the names from you and start doing that. Yeah, yeah, that one, it, it's it's wild, but yeah, I'm fine, you know, from Mobile, Alabama, and it's one of the uh, uh, most horrific crimes ever committed in Mobile, Alabama, and they were people that I knew, so it, it's, right. it's, it's insane, but I'm excited to uh, look at this case tonight. Yeah, yeah, and why don't we start off, welcome to the show, of course, but uh, why don't we you tell us a little bit about... Um, about yourself? Sure. So uh, I'm kind of half half from New Orleans, half from Mobile, Alabama. Um, I work as a paralegal. Like Lisa said, we are co-workers, so I get to have these conversations like we're about to have almost on a daily basis. Uh, and uh, I love the work that I do. Um, definitely, I can consider myself a nosy person, and so that's why true crime is True crime and just paralegal work in general has been such a good fit for me. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, I've, I always approach stuff with more questions. Um, you know, I, I want, I just, I think, Lisa, you and I have talked about this case a lot over the last few days, and I keep telling you, I just need this answered. I just need this question answered. And so different questions every time. Um, so, yeah, that I have, I have two cats. My cat is sitting next to me. And he is very jealous. He can't be up here right now. And uh, oh goodness, yeah, that's, that's that's me. I'm nosy and I love cats. Is is he going to start meowing and making people think you have a baby crying in the background that you're ignoring? Because I had a cat who used to do that to me on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, he might meow. He might, but the my mic is pretty good. It doesn't usually pick up much else. So. <laughs> I I had a guy that I was talking to who thought I had a baby and was like, "Okay, I gotta go." Oh, and gosh. It turns out that's a, that's my cat. That's not a baby. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. we we love them even though they they do nothing to uh, <laughs> they do nothing to deserve it. <laughs> we we love them and serve them. Yep. Uh, it's the people in Egypt who worship them for generations who screwed the rest of us i was gonna say maybe i mean that, they might have had that right if we maybe if we start worshiping <laughs> cats the world will go back the way it was supposed to be we'll see <laughs> so all right well let's uh let's start uh, with uh, michael peterson state of north carolina and of course uh peterson was born in tennessee uh there's not a lot of information about him on the internet but I know he has two brothers and a sister. He graduated from Duke University. I'm not quite sure what his early career was, maybe trying to be a journalist. And then he married a woman by the name of Patty and joined the Marine Corps and served in Vietnam, well, Lisa, uh, where he uh, won... Lisa, it does say on Wikipedia that his uh, Duke University degree was in political science, and uh, he took a civilian job with the DOD. Okay. Originally in Vietnam. Okay. Oh, with the DOD when he went to Vietnam. But then he eventually joined. See, that's always kind of confused me, is joining the Marine Corps and going into 
Well, actually, he worked for the DOD before enlisting. He had a job with the DOD, then enlisted in 68 in the Marines. Okay, so that was after he married Patty. He was, I guess he was originally assigned with the DOD to uh, the Department of Defense, for anybody that doesn't know what that is, to uh, sign research arguments supporting uh, military involvement in Vietnam, is what it says. Okay. Huh. All right. And that's when, uh, that same year he met, uh, I guess, his first wife, Patricia Sue. Yeah. Now, I have to ask Michelle. Michelle, did you get the impression from her appearances in Staircase that she was almost speaking from scripted? Uh, She had a really odd mannerism about her i uh, you know i'm not 100 percent certain um I, I that one that's a really good question and i hadn't really thought about it a whole lot to be completely honest i did not i i didn't have a very strong opinion of her i kind of glossed over her mm-hmm. to be completely honest <laughs> and see, well, maybe I, that's you know, your I, answer it may be that she was just uninteresting <laughs> Apparently, I saw them on, they were on Dr. Oz. And she was, she had the same odd mannerism and odd way of speaking mm-hmm. that she had in Staircase. And I didn't appreciate Dr. Oz interviewing her with Michael Peterson sitting right there. Uh, that, I mean, yeah, come I didn't on. Even... I didn't know that Dr. Oz interviewed her, but he doesn't say, doesn't seem like the most qualified person to interview. Um, no, he and Dr. Phil are just... I, I was uh, going to say, I mean, I'm not saying that Dr. Phil is any more qualified, but I, I kind of ranked Dr. Phil higher on the low end of my list of, of, of TV doctors. <laughs> Dr. Phil, if he's being paid by the Innocence Project, then you're going to get totally softball. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, and I did watch the Dr. Phil interview and he absolutely, I mean, he just let let Michael Peterson he gave him way too much um leeway. He didn't ask him to answer right. for a lot of things that he should have asked him to answer for. Um yeah. so yeah, you're absolutely right. Definitely softball. There were a couple times where he he kind of held him to the fire a little bit, but not as much as he really could. Mhm. So, and then uh, Peterson's military career ended when he was in a car accident in Japan. Um, And then I think somewhere around there, his sons Clayton and Todd were born, and the family moved to Germany. Uh, Michael was apparently working on his novel uh, because Patty, Patty, he was still married to Patty, and Patty was teaching at the... Uh, American school in Germany. And to clarify that, you're saying he got injured in a like a civilian car accident, and then he just wasn't in the military anymore. Well, I I guess he was injured in he was on duty, injured in an accident that was not related. Okay. To his, you know, to his service. Okay. Um, in Japan. And the injury was such that he was unable to continue his career. Gotcha. 
Now, one of the things that I suspect with Peterson, and I can't confirm it, but I suspect that there is some mythology to his rendition of his life history. So none of it's corroborated (laughs) for me. Sure. Yeah, and I think as we're going to see as we go down this this rabbit hole that uh, you really – you need – we got to really trust the facts. You know what? What we know, right? What, what can be verified? Um, because correct and corroborated. You know, we're we're gonna see that the guy, the guy's a writer, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, it it takes it takes uh it takes something to be a writer. So I'm, yeah. I'm not gonna extrapolate much more because we're gonna get into <laughs> it. But <laughs> so uh, in Germany, they met a, a a gentleman George Ratliff who was in the Air Force. Um, now, what I the I get the impression that they lived on the base because of, or near the base because of Patty's work at the school, and Michael was the civilian husband. That their their presence in Germany had nothing to do with him, is because of her. Uh, but they meet the Ratliffs. George is in the Air Force. Uh, he. George dies, and there are different stories. I've I've heard car accident. I've heard he was killed during the invasion of Grenada, although I believe the invasion of Grenada was too early for him to have died because Martha, with Martha's age, he couldn't die or or he couldn't have been Martha's dad. No, that was Peterson's car accident. Uh, okay. George okay. Ratliff died in like eighty three. Okay. Roughly. Okay, I apologize. I don't see anything on and that. And after George Ratliff died, Michael Peterson stepped into George's place. He started helping Liz with the estate left by George Ratliff. He started helping her uh paying bills and he started helping her around the house and for somebody who did have a relationship with this woman, he spent a lot of time with her and even stepped in as kind of a surrogate father to Margaret and Martha, who were the very, very young children of Liz and George. Uh, in 1983, also, his first book was published. It was a novel about Vietnam or novel about war. have never read it. But the problem is, is that on the book jacket, he claimed to have received two Purple Hearts during his service in Vietnam. And that was not true. And that remained on his yeah, book jacket. Yeah, I see, I see uh, the name of the book is The Immortal Dragon, The Time of War and Bitter Peace. Bitter peace. Um, and apparently mm-hmm. it was quite uh, panned. Uh, apparently... Uh, Apparently, it was uh, quite uh, quite written. Apparently, it there were some articles written that were quite negative about the book. <laughs> That's the word I'm looking for. Mark inside education systems betraying me right now. That's okay. Uh, and then, um, 
Liz dies in 1985, and Michael Peterson and Patty Peterson take guardianship of Martha and Margaret. They didn't. Ado- they never adopted them. They just became their permanent guardians. Uh, and I think Liz Ratliff's family had a little problem with that. I can imagine that. I mean, that's kind of random. So I guess it's not really random, but I could see I could see the family having an issue with you guys kind of met these people not that long ago, and you're, you know, two horrific situations happened where now their parents, now the parents are dead, and you're just going to leave them to mm-hmm. these people that I'm sure that most of the family didn't even know, so... That's definitely yeah. something that's a little off-putting, to say the least. And then later, not real clear on the timeline, uh, Patty and Michael divorce, and the sons stay with Patty for a period of time, and the girls go with Michael. Uh, I believe that they all return to the U.S. Uh, again, it's kind of unclear who went where. And I think they came to North Carolina. Yeah, according, and once again, remember the source, but according to Wikipedia, (laughs) he moved to uh, Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. And that's where he met Kathleen Hunt Atwater. Now, Peterson's other books, just to gloss over here a little bit, uh, his second book was published in 89, his third was published in 90, published in 95, and his last was published in 98. There were a total of three books that he wrote on his own and two that he co-wrote that dealt, the two he co-wrote I think dealt with kind of a military, more a military history type. Now, are, are these um, all going to be like kind of works of historical fiction or are they all... Historical books? This, what what are we talking this, about here? The three that he wrote were along the lines of the first one, the Immortal Dragon. Uh-huh. Um, and then the two that he co-wrote, one was about a, a Marine company in Korea. The Marines of Love Company? Yeah. And I don't okay. remember what the second one was about, Michael. You can Google Michael Peterson books. <laughs> right on. I, I was like just I was just looking at it, and it doesn't go into depth as much as anything else. It really just kind of glosses over his literary uh, prowess. It does yeah. say Marines of Love Company was written with journalist uh, David Perlmutt. Yeah. So, uh, and then Kathleen uh, Kathleen Hunt is her maiden name. She was born in 1953 in North Carolina. Um, She had two sisters, Lori and Candace, and a brother, Stephen. The family relocated to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where she went to school. Um, And she was quite a student. She went to Lancaster McCaskey High School. Um, She was the first student allowed to take advanced classes at Franklin and Marshall College. And she was taking advanced Latin. Uh, She was accepted into Duke's 
engineering program in 1971 and was the first woman accepted into the program. She earned a bachelor's in civil engineering and a master's in mechanical engineering at Duke and went on to work in Baltimore for uh, Baltimore Aircoil Pritchard, which I think made cooling parts for air cooling towers. She worked for Merck's. And then um, she also, at around this time, married Fred Atwater. I know nothing about him. Uh, she had a hard time, but she was finally able to get pregnant and had her daughter, Caitlin. And it was shortly after Caitlin was born that Kathleen's sister, Candace, noticed a new woman that was around a lot. And it turned out that her Kathleen's husband, Fred, was having an affair with this woman. Um, the family moved to North Carolina, and Kathleen went to work for Nortel Networks, where she rose in the ranks uh, and became an executive. Sometime in the early 1980s, she and Fred Atwater divorced, and that was very difficult for her. Um, I think Caitlin referred to her uh, in a letter or or a statement not taking it very well. And I think Fred's infidelity had a, an impact on her. And this is – this version of the events, this is uh, told who? Well, part of it is through um, – Kathleen's obituary, which I found as as online. Like her opinion of, of her husband's infidelity. Like we we know that that it, here, it, it's well. I know that her ex-husband yeah, cheated on her. Candace in an interview. Candace said that she spent a lot of time with Kathleen in Maryland, and she was there when Caitlin was born, and you know with Kathleen through that first pregnancy. And she said after the after Caitlin was born, she noticed a woman had around, and right. then Kathleen confided in her that Fred was having an affair, and Candace, you know, said it was very difficult for. Her. And I I have no reason to believe Candace is not. Oh sure, I was wondering where it was. I just just kind of want to I, footnote where that where that's coming from. The sorry, that. no, it's okay. That's that's just me. <laughs> um, I was I I was reading a bunch of things over the weekend and. Well, I think um, this part of of the history is important, and so I just yeah. kind of want to underline there that she yeah. was she had been cheated on, and she did not like it, and it wasn't something like they were never. Yeah, she so she was not into open relationships as far as we could tell. No. Just based on the evidence that we have. Right. Correct. And she met Michael Peterson. They started living together. Um, I think Clayton and Todd joined the the family at some point. And in 1997, Michael Peterson and Kathleen were married. Um, then we know there were problems with Clayton in college. He apparently wanted to steal a machine to make fake IDs. And in order to throw people off the scent of that, he planted a pipe bomb. Oof. 
That's a little drastic. Um, now, of course, you know, he he said it was never going to go off. It wouldn't have hurt anybody. He made sure. But he did end up spending some time in prison for that. This is Clayton. This is one of the sons? The oldest son. Okay. Which they don't mention in Staircase. Yeah, I don't remember any mention of that. And then a, apparently Todd did not like Kathleen, and they had a contentious relationship. Well, in the staircase, and that was from that forensic of, files. That all of those kids were happy and loved, loved as like you know, the staircase kind of painted it. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be misremembering. Mm-hmm. But the staircase painted it, and Michael Peterson paints it this way in a couple of his interviews. They were just so happy, and when the family combined, it was like sleepover forever, uh-huh. and it was just wonderful and perfect. So the, you're say you're saying that is the first I've heard of that. Yeah. Of this pipe yeah. bomb and the, you know, Todd apparently not being happy. Correct. Um, yeah, Todd was, uh, you know, he was like jealous of Kathleen. I get that. From what people described. I get that. And so he, you know, he didn't think that she was the person for his one. And he is, when you watch him in, and I think they kind of almost cut him out of the second half. Because he was really kind of strange. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into some of that a little bit later. Um, so the blended family, um, now it was good for Martha and Margaret. Not only to have Kathleen, but to have Caitlin. Mm-hmm. And I think that was fairly, in Staircase, that was fairly true to life. Although for them to just, cut Caitlin out of their lives now because she believed their father was guilty or that Peterson was guilty is kind of sad. I don't know though. I can't, uh, if I, if I tried, <laughs> you know, I, I have stepbrothers and, and stepsisters and I can't, I, I don't know if I, I feel like the emotions would be just high enough that I would do, I would do something like that. So I'm going to, I will try. Not, I will try to reserve my well, judgment. Well, yeah, and you know, and, and it may be as much Caitlin, and it may be as much Caitlin, too. Sure. So I, you're right. I I take that back. <laughs> well, They're and all then three also, wrong. Well, and I think though so too. Like if these are still step siblings, like even despite this whole thing happening, like there's going to be. Pieces that are probably bitter that you just there's something that you just never know about, um, mm-hmm. as far as the family dynamic goes. But that's um, yeah. I mean, I I do believe though that they did generally have a good relationship. Um, sounds yeah. like the boys were the ones who gave trouble though. Correct. <laughs> uh, but I that could also have been after their dad left and took the girls and left them with Patty. Mm-hmm who seems like she's a few fries short of a Happy Meal oh, to begin with. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's probably a lot of baggage. Her. There's a lot of baggage in that Peterson family. Um, that, I, no doubt about that. I get that impression. Anytime you hear this guy talk, I mean, he is, it's it's like his life is a Disney movie. And, yeah. you know, it's, Anytime you hear him talk, everything is too good to be true. It just doesn't really – he just doesn't sound realistic. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I think that has been 
his entire life, and that's what he wants people to see. Right. I think that's why he can't admit that something happened. Right. That's I was going to say. He strikes me as a person in denial. He strikes me as a person that likes to – I mean, and this is all just a personal – um, review of I've watched a lot of interviews of him. I've seen some of the staircase, um, mm-hmm. and it just seems like he really enjoys telling stories. Um, and it Correct. it's appropriate that he's a novelist for a reason, but it really he really I mean why I I can't I don't think I've seen another kind of mur- may or may not be murderer that has taken so many interviews. I mean. I kind of think that he – it seems like he really enjoys telling this story. Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of what rubs me wrong about him is uh, everything everything is, is, is hunky-dory, uh, and it's like he wants things – we're going to get into this too. He, he likes to stage things. Correct. It definitely seems that wow. he stages things. He staged his family – life as like this rainbow perfect happy thing and clearly your son made a pipe bomb. It's not exactly yeah. <laughs> we're not exactly right. the Brady Bunch. So anyway, so the family between nineteen ninety nine and two thousand one, uh, in spite of Kathleen's position at Nortel and the um generous stock options and things that she had um, the family's financial picture was not as rosy. Uh, first of all, Michael Peterson wasn't really bringing in much of an income. He had a Veterans Administration pension, disability pension. He had a military disability pension. He had a retirement-type pension, I guess from, from where? the newspaper. Okay. I, I, I guess from the newspaper or maybe his early DOD job or, mm. uh, you know, some other job he'd held. But he didn't bring in that much a month. I think the total he brought in a month was maybe about thirteen to $1,300 $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, a month. Which, if we, if you look at where he was living, you'll see why that is, you know, not much. <laughs> not <laughs> that ain't much. Gonna I was going to say most of America and, will be like, man, mm, yeah, I can make his, it work. <laughs> his tax returns, uh, the on the tax returns, he had zero income. Sure. Well, I'm, so I'm whatever asking. sources he had income from were not taxable. Right, right. Or he wasn't making enough to to tax. Sure. Um, and so uh, Michael Peterson at one point was, and this is something too, he was worried about the debts that Clayton and Todd had gotten themselves into. So he was getting trying to get their mother to take out a loan to pay off their debts. Well, they're never going to learn if you do that for them. So, um, and I, I guess she did. I don't know. Well, didn't I read something tells they me had, like, he has uh, over a hundred thousand credit card debt 
at that time? That was Michael and Kathleen, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was Michael and Kathleen. They did also have, they had significant credit card debt. Um, And they were selling stock and they were selling different things in order to try and make ends meet to make up for shortfalls. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at one point, um, Michael asked one of Martha's uncles to chip in for her college tuition each semester, which he agreed to do. Uh, and then Nor- Nortel was having problems then. Their stock was falling. They were laying people off. Kathleen's name was on a list to potentially be laid off. Luckily, she was removed and not laid off. So it was you know, it was not it was not the rosy picture he portrays in right. staircase. Yeah, and see I know at in all. One of his interviews I wish I could recall if it was a dateline interview or Dr. Phil or I'm, I'm not sure. But it was saying that they you know um prosecution made not prosecution necessarily, but everyone made a much bigger deal of the financial situation than they should have and I believe Dateline was even saying, you know, in truth, their assets well exceeded the debts that they had. Um, so, if they, you know, that they could have sold the house, they could have taken drastic measures to counteract the hole they had dug themselves into. Um, I just, you know, I think we see this all the time where people don't do what they're, they should do. Uh, right. <laughs> you and know, I, once- I think, I think as far as the house, that's correct, but the stock options and the stock with Nortel, it lost its value. Sure. Well, that, in fact, the, in I... the year before, it had it had like I th- I think about seventy five to eighty percent of the value was gone. So all the stock she had was worth. Sure. So so they would twenty five or thirty thousand bucks. You know, it wasn't it wasn't worth the millions or whatever. And right. I, that was on paper. Their right. their financial on paper, but in reality, yeah, liquid so, they had zero. Just I was just I'll just I guess Pearson beat that apparently they were they were fine as far as like debt to asset ratio maybe not fine as as far as money coming in, uh, but yeah, you know I, and that that's the thing though is you have to look at it like once. Once you have a certain lifestyle, you maintain that lifestyle. You know, uh, there there obviously was money to be liquidated, um, but I can understand still saying like that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is not necessarily going to be uh, still feeling hurt, like they're hurting for money. You know, um, they're right. definitely still upside down, and it would take a major, major change to change that. But I. I think it's also important to recognize that as far as the uh, assets and the wealth, I think most of that was Kathleen. Sure. So if Kathleen either removes herself from the relationship or kicks Uh, Michael, then he's got nothing. So I have a quick question then, but just – because I know we're going to have to tie up this loose end. Obviously, Kathleen dies at some point. Spoiler alert. Um, so he 
he had to pay for his defense, and they make a big deal about that in the staircase where um, he had to liquidate everything in order to pay for his defense, and at some mm-hmm. point the defense attorney starts working for free. Um, so th- was he, at the time of her death, was he still the sole beneficiary of all of her her stuff? Like her he was, right. He was a sole beneficiary. What happened? Spoiler alert. We're going to, we're going to go ahead a little bit. This is good. Um, Cause we might forget later. Well, it's important he, to outline what the money situation was for sure. He was able to collect on her deferred salary, her pension plan, and some of those things through Nortel. Yeah. Um, which was several hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Nothing to sneeze at. But the life insurance policies, because of the Slayer statute in North Carolina, they did not sure. pay out because he was charged. Right. And eventually they paid out to Caitlin and her father fred okay um and they were defense policies so they ended up the the litigation with caitlin kind of ate at some of the cash from the policies but they also paid interest for the length of the dispute so caitlin ended up getting the insurance but he got several hundred thousand from the pension plan, and Caitlin tried to recover that but was unable to. Sure. I guess I'm just trying to get an idea of of the money that was spent in his defense, how much of it mm-hmm. was his and how much of it was hers, if that makes sense. Right. And, well, any other assets, you know, the home, but they never sold the home because they lived in it. I think they right. didn't sell the home until after he was convicted. Right. Um. Uh. But any, yeah, any other liquid assets through her estate. But again, I, you know, I say this a lot. These people don't contemplate getting caught. Sure. So what they think they're going to get, they think they could get the whole ball of wax. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Right. So, well, thank you. Now, yeah, I just wanted in, to outline what that financial situation was. Yeah. They're, they're negative, and she's the sole breadwinner. That's where, we're, and where we are. He's got no income to speak yeah. of. I mean, I, you know, his, his income might have paid for his gym membership. Yeah. Yep. So... Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the things that uh, probably one of the many reasons that he didn't testify is in 1999 when he ran for mayor of Durham, the lie about his Purple Hearts on his book jackets was ex- because while he claimed he got one Purple Heart for uh, a shrapnel wound when a radio operator stepped on a landmine, and a second Purple Heart for being shot during combat, uh, the Durham paper was able to expose, I wonder if it was the one he worked for, 
the Durham paper exposed that that wasn't true. And one of the things that Peterson told the reporter was, oh, now I have to talk to Kathleen. So he had apparently sold this lie to Kathleen. And see, this is what I wonder about that is, I mean, what's especially if if you convinced your wife that surely you have a scar. Not, well, I guess he was in that that accident, but I, I'm just. I, it, I think I have, he tried to claim whatever the injuries were from the accident were from ultimately right. either shrapnel or being shot. I'd I'd be curious to know what his role was in Vietnam. You know, like. Was he an on-the-ground person? Um, you know, are these maybe stories of other people that he served with? That's kind of where my yeah. mind goes there, you know. One of, the, one of the resources I found that there was an incident in his company where a radio operator stepped on a landmine. Mm-hmm. Um, but Captain Peterson was not injured by shrapnel. Sure. When it happened, and Captain Peterson was never shot. Mm-hmm. So, I'm curious too. Um, it seems like you would get in trouble with the military if that if that kind of like you were caught telling that kind of lie, even if you're retired. It seems like there would be some kind of reprimand. I I don't know that it ever came to the attention of the military or that he ever really went beyond the blurb on the book jacket and probably if he did any interviews mm-hmm. having that said, I don't know that he got any real benefit. It's not like he wasn't uh he wasn't claiming to be and, and the VA disability benefit that he did get was legitimately from and it was the, from the car accident because I think even accident. if you're not if you're not injured but your military career ends because of a disability mm-hmm. as a result of some kind of injury, you can get some disability. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot. It should be a lot more. Yeah, I, I do um, know I do know somebody who was um, um, injured kind of indirectly in service like you're talking about, and he, mm-hmm. you know, still had to work a full-time job to be able to support himself and all that stuff, but... Uh, yeah, right. it, it's not exceptional for sure. Yeah. So, um, and then Michael Peterson uh, apparently, while he says he's monogamous, he's really not. He perhaps does not know the meaning of the word. <laughs> perhaps he thinks if you just have sex with somebody, you're still monogamous. Yeah, I mean... But Definitely a spectrum there, but yeah, there's definitely a spectrum to be acknowledged there. Um, but um, I think that both parties have to be in agreement to whatever your that that setup is, right. and I think anything outside of that is not monogamy. <laughs> yeah, if if you're looking for anything, even even emotional, you know. You're not monogamous. Sure. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. But that it's I I just whenever he tried to go into that, well, it's not a relationship. 
spiel. Um, I, I was like, oh, God, help us. <laughs> yeah, and so he talks about this a bit, and he um, admits, you know, he was sleeping with other people and that I guess he hadn't told Kathleen about it. And he swears that if he had told Kathleen, she would have been super fine with it. She's super progressive. And, I mean, um, it it doesn't, based on the characterization of her reaction to the infidelity of her, and then, but then there's also like, if she's so progressive as a person who is, I think I consider myself pretty progressive. Um, if she's so progressive, like uh, that, that you would be comfortable enough to share that with her and maybe discuss an open relationship. I just don't held that from her. Um, I think you would have been comfortable discussing an open relationship and not hiding it. But he admits that he hid it, you know. Right, but he, that's the thing though, there's this, there's this multiple stories, because sometimes he says she was aware. Right, and that's not the interview that I, and there's a point at which they say, well, why didn't you just tell her? And he said, I don't know, I should have told her, I don't know. And, you know, and I think, um, I think it's him telling different stories and David Rudolph telling different stories. Well, and I, it's at some point... Because they didn't have a straight story to. throughout the staircase. Sure. Sometimes she was aware, sometimes she knew and was fine with it. She didn't care. She understood it was just sex, you know. Yeah, and see that... And the other times... I, yeah, the impression of Dateline was that um, uh, if she were aware, she would have been fine with it. <laughs> That's really, it's really cool that they can, you know, know the state of mind of somebody who's dead. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I'm a fan of pointing to past experience. And if, if this is a woman who's been cheated on before, like, it seems to me pretty well confirmed that she did not know about it. And she obviously did not like her, whoever her husband was, sleeping around. Um, without her knowledge. Correct. So I think it's safe to say that if we know that she didn't know about it um, and we know that he was sleeping around, that she would have been upset about that. Correct. And part of the reason he got caught was because, uh, like men of a certain generation born before 1980, um, he was printing things out, printing photos, <laughs> printing emails, printing ads, and storing them in a desk drawer in a manila envelope. <laughs> the safest place. <laughs> so when uh, his wife needs to use the computer for work, she is probably going to stumble across either something on the computer or that manila envelope in the desk drawer. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then we get to December 8th and 9th, and the first thing that makes this extremely difficult is we are missing about between one hour and about two and a half hours, somewhere in there. In the timeline, as far as the events on the The timeline is, you know, it's totally blank. Um, we know some things from the uh, investigation 
you know, information from the computer, et cetera. But one of the things with Michael Peterson is while he likes to talk, he didn't want to talk to police. Yeah. And neither did Todd. So um, now the night, December 8th and 9th, Todd went out to a party with some friends. Kathleen and Michael watched a movie and had dinner, and they were drinking wine. And he says they drank about two bottles of wine, um, maybe more, maybe less. Sometimes I get the impression he's trying to make it sound like they drank more than they did. So I will say her autopsy. Oh, yeah, her autopsy. 0.07 is not really that bad. Oh, I didn't even know the exact number. I just know that they said that she was under the legal limit would be consistent with one to two glasses of wine. Right. But he says they drank two bottles. Maybe he drank two bottles. Well, to be fair, <laughs> let's let's be fair here. For me, a bottle of wine is four glasses. Uh, so, you know, maybe half a yeah. bottle of wine. That's That's a typical, you know, wine o'clock for me. Right. Right. Not um, unreasonable. So, uh, now Kathleen had a work call scheduled for Sunday, December 9th. She was also supposed to travel to Toronto on the 10th. She had a coworker was sending her documents to review or documents that were going to be needed on the conference call. And since she didn't have her work laptop at home, she had to use Michael's email address to get these documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's also missing from uh, Michael's statements is Kathleen ever having these phone conversations and doing these things outside of his presence. It's almost like when he wasn't there, she didn't exist. Because yeah. he doesn't gonna... mention any of these things in his in his timeline. Yeah, and that's what I was kind of curious. Um, is this? It doesn't sound like this is a usual thing for her to use. It sounds like that was his computer, right? Is, is, that, is that a good characterization? Is there testimony it, or like? It was the home computer, and she had like she had a user profile, and he had a user profile. Mm-hmm. And this is and from what I read in the state so, brief, you know. she accessed her user profile, but she may have also gone into his user profile, or this is in the days of Windows Vista. Yeah, I was going to say um, the, the user profile XP. doesn't actually it doesn't really change that much um, as far as what's accessible, um, but. So. But it sounds like so on that um, evening. On that evening, though, she did access the computer through her own user profile. Is that what they're saying? That's from what I understand of the of the state's brief. And she sent uh, an email from his back. email. Well, she was having an email sent to her at his address. Huh. So she would have to open up his email. So the only thing I could think that would be the case is if. Um, because that, you know, we have everything's remote now. I can open up my email from a right. browser, from my work email. But it sounds like she maybe didn't have her own email. Be weird. Because I, I would think that well, she would get that to her own email. 
it might have been or it might have been that she couldn't access Nortel email account remotely. She could do it on the work laptop. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying, though, is like she didn't have her own personal email account because she had this email to Michael's personal email account. Yeah, that that may be. It may be that she didn't use personal email. Because I'm just I'm trying to understand. Yeah. How she gets this is 2001 and email. I I think email was still. Well, I mean, I guess people did kind of. Um, use I can't comment. I'm I'm a baby. 2001. I I didn't. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about email. Uh, so it's possible. Maybe just I don't know if that landscape was like yeah. back then. But maybe she didn't have a personal email back then, and so that's the one that she logged into. Um, now, is there? So has Michael commented on this tra- whole transaction at all? Like, has he been asked about? Oh, he never her? mentioned. See, that's remember his story has been. They one of the stories wine, she they told was that out. they were sitting out by the pool. Right, and that's the story and that she I went know. in to go to bed. Have her accessing the email. Eleven, at, sometime after eleven o'clock, between eleven and midnight. So between eleven and what time does he say that they were sitting out at the pool? Like the last time that he doesn't he say. He doesn't. He doesn't say. offer. In spite of the fact that he's a mil- he's a military man okay. who's wearing a watch all the fucking time, <laughs> but he doesn't yeah. he doesn't pinpoint. Okay. So. All right. Um, we could we could continue. That's just I wanted to kind of clear that that's up. That's kind of. And we really and now we get to the point where the only person who could enlighten us is Michael Peterson. And in spite of his love of talking, and in spite of his fact that he's a storyteller, the story he doesn't want to tell. 2.40 a.m., there's a call to Durham County 911 Services from Michael Peterson, summoning help. Not even what kind of help. Because his wife fell down the stairs. Now, one of the things that's interesting, he says she's still breathing. Right. On the initial call. Right. And he says it again. And then he terminates the call. And when he calls back, he says she's not breathing. Now, there's a long period. He gets kind of defensive when the 911 operator is trying to ask him questions to try and determine what happened, what situation, et cetera. He gets defensive. But then there is a long period of what sounds to me, in my personal opinion, crying or fake distress. And I will say it's important to note that he, uh, because, you know, I think I told you, Lisa, I listened to a couple baby analysts um, kind of just rip apart this 911 call, but opens it up Uh with repeating himself saying, there's been an accident. She fell down the stairs. And and like, right. he, you know, that is apparently typical of trying to set the scene. You know, he Correct. wants the first. So, so that is a little abnormal. I will say, it did sound very odd, and he sounded almost um, full of a. I would say. Uh, yeah. 
so that that is something to point out. And then how long between the two phone calls? It was a very short time between the two phone calls, but he like calls back in, says she's not breathing and hangs up again. The paramedics arrived within about six to eight minutes. Okay. Paramedics get there. Kathleen is cold. There Mm -hmm. are no breath sounds. Her heart is in a systole. She's gone. Mm Mm-hmm. And has been gone for some time. Right. Um, The paramedics also observed the copious amounts of blood that it looked like someone had tried to clean it up. And then there was blood spatter on top of that. And Kathleen's body position wasn't consistent with a fall downstairs. So that's that's interesting. Um, because you're pointing out he calls around, two, what, at 2.40 a.m.? Um, yeah. The EMS arrives within about eight minutes, and there's already the EMS said, the ones that said that it looked like they had tried to clean up? Like there was they wiping observed, on the yeah, wall? Yeah, their, their testimony, they observed white marks with blood spatter on top. Okay. And and I think what what defense would, I imagine, try to say is they are not experts. They're EMS people who you know they're they're that i would imagine that would get deflect deflected saying hey that we can't trust that <laughs> you know i mean like they i imagine that defense would try to say it i imagine they did well, try to say you know we're not going to trust that because they are not know, experts but you don't have to be an expert witness to observe something like that they're not trying to say uh the blood spatter is from this action on that person by this person. Sure. They're just saying, looking at the wall, and you can look at those, you and I can look at the pictures. Sure. And we can see what's to be seen. Well, see, this is the thing, though, because I remember in one of his interviews, Michael Peterson explains that, um, but, or was it Michael Peterson? I just remember it being explained either in a podcast or in some other interview setting that by the time those pictures were taken apparently and this is not going to line up with the information that that you actually told me yesterday but apparently there were already people there trying up um but that is going to be that is going to be inconsistent with the fact that he in fact did not clean up the place he he did not clean up the place ever no And that, again, that sounds like whoever is saying that the pictures, like I said, the EMS observed blood on the wall under that cat picture. Yeah. That it looked like somebody had tried to clean up, and then there was blood spatter on top of that. Oh, that's interesting. Where, like he was, like he was trying to clean up, and then Kathleen moaned or moved, and he had to hit her again. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and you know, like they're not, as I said, the EMS guys—they can observe that. They're not interpreting it. A blood spatter expert does the interpretation. Sure. And so. But so a person, a, a lay person, can observe. So, so the apparently, condition. as far as the EMS go, when they get there, eight 
eight to ten minutes ago, this woman had a breath. But they get there, they observe the wiping on the walls, and they also observe uh-huh. that, that the blood has dried. Correct. So that's an interesting Correct. next part. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, Kathleen's body position was inconsistent with the fall because her body was laid out straight in a straight line. Which her he would say is because he grabbed her straight. and cradled her. She doesn't even look, her legs are splayed apart. It looks like he grabbed her by the ankles and pulled her. Yeah, it does. It definitely looks like she was pulled. Yeah, but he he will say that, you know, that the photo is not representative because he, you know, got down to her and was the crazed spouse. And so, you know, just he like held her and stuff like that. Um, so that that is what he, he says about it. But you you can claim that, Michael, but I'm going to say you you put her into a position that would obscure what happened. Well, and you this were is staging the crime scene. Consider also this is a military man. He's he has to know CPR, right? Because my my initial mm-hmm. thought is I need to you know your first step with uh, somebody who's injured. If you're going to be doing CPR, is you have to get them on a flat surface, um, and her head is on the on one of the steps in that photo so right that is that's definitely inconsistent to me is like it, okay if you're going to be moving the body at all it's going to be to get her in an optimal position for CPR right correct um and so Todd was uncooperative uh one of the things because they were dealing with a uh a death and police were going to investigate it. And they weren't targeting one person or the other. It was a suspicious death. Mm-hmm. They were summoned sure. by 911. I mean, this wasn't somebody that was in hospice care. You know, right. This was someone who was alive and, and breathing at midnight and at 2.40 in the morning is cold. So mm-hmm. they're going to investigate. So they're trying to separate people. They're keeping an eye on Michael Peterson, which, of course, he makes it sound like that's something nefarious. Right. SOP. Right. And he maintains you know. that he thinks the uh, the cops were out to get him from the beginning because as a journalist, he was critical of the police department. Um, but, you know, I, I just... It, and, I don't, we don't really have evidence that that is the he, he hadn't published a book since 1998. He was no longer working for the paper, probably because he was claiming to be a Purple Heart recipient, and he wasn't. Um, I don't think a lot of people took Michael Peterson all that seriously. Sure. I'm just going to put it out there. Yeah, just that one thing um, you just made about him saying that the police were out to get him just because he was a journalist. That makes no damn sense. Well, specifically, he said that he was very critical of that police department when he was a journalist. Now, I don't know what the timeline was as far as, like, when was the last time he wrote a critical piece of the police department. I'd be curious uh-huh. to know what that timeline is um, because I'm, gonna, I'm willing. You know, my gut says it was probably he might be thinking a little bit more of himself than he, than he really should be. Right. Yeah, because he's, he's the star of his show. Yeah. Um, but one of the interesting things was Todd, uh, he decided that the police wouldn't let him talk to his friends, so 
he tried to go outside and signal to him through a window. And he was literally trying to get around the police to talk to people, even though police are saying, you know, please don't do that until we can talk to you. And then when they tried to talk to him, he refused to talk, mm-hmm. as did Michael Peterson. And so from Michael Peterson, we have like 1% of a story. Yeah, and he will, have, again, in his, in, his, in his interview, he will say that that was because he was critical of the department and blah, blah, blah. So. But, you know, that doesn't make that doesn't make any sense to me now if you're the only person who knows what happened right why would you and you know it could be that his obstinance gave them very little to go on when the body position is inconsistent the blood amount of blood is inconsistent the findings at autopsy are not consistent with an accidental fall. Right. I mean, now they're trying to float an intruder theory mm-hmm. when he never mentioned that before. And the most he said is similar to what he said in staircase. They either sat by the pool for a while, hours, whatever, and then Kathleen went inside to go to bed and Michael Peterson found her later which he's very unclear about what he was doing while he was outside. He says he fell asleep next to the pool for one, two hours is what he says. Yeah. But um, on in a 50 degree night in shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah. And I would say, I would, you know, we have to, in that case where this guy's not talking um, and we have gaps, we have to look at what, what is unrefuted and just cannot be explained away, right? Like, she, right. we know that between, what is it, 10 and 11, she's accesses yeah. the email. 11 we and 12, kn- rather. Oh, I'm sorry, 11 and 12, she accesses the email. We know that at 2.40, she's breathing. We know that around 2.48, roughly, she's cold. I, I disagree. Okay. Michael Pearson says she's breathing at 2.40. 2.40. But she's cold when the paramedics get there eight minutes later. Right. So that, that's important. That's, that doesn't yeah, have, that doesn't, that's not how it works. Yeah. No, sorry, that's, that's more of a, uh, a side note, like a, an asterisk next to that, you know, 248 yeah. roughly she's cold, but a few minutes before she's breathing, um, the blood is dried. I think all of that is pretty easy. You can say like, it's undisputed yeah. that he says at 240, she's breathing. It's undisputed that, that the EMS says she's cold. Um, now, what is the yeah. time in there? Uh, if if between, so that would mean that let's just say, at, if at the earliest she's dead at at eleven, which is a little bit too early, but between eleven and two forty, almost three, a body goes cold. Is that I, I, is commentary on that? I mean, was there a did they With have an the idea how long she was? It probably, I don't know that they ever, because I know I didn't see it in the, uh, I didn't see it addressed in the autopsy report. Okay. And they didn't play a clip of Deborah Radish. Now, you can watch the whole trial on court TV, mm-hmm. which I didn't find out until much later. Um, so I may watch the whole trial and we can revisit this case. 
Well, I mean, I'm just curious. I didn't know if there was any estimate on how long she'd been dead or, or if anybody yeah. just knew offhand roughly how long it would take. I mean, it um, seems to me like a body would go cold in four hours, you know, three to four hours. That uh, that doesn't sound unreasonable to me as a person yeah. with zero I, knowledge. I think with that. the blood loss, that is definitely, um, I think with blood loss, the loss of temperature is accelerated a little bit more than it would be for a um a death involving something other than blood loss Interesting. because your body temperature drops when you lose blood yeah, and that's interesting. I just did a quick google and according to Florida State University um uh if the body is warm and stiff, it occurred three to eight hours earlier, cold and stiff eight to thirty six hours earlier, and then cold and not stiff it's more than thirty six hours earlier. That's interesting, but I don't know that that takes in the mitigating factor of her basically bleeding out. Right, um, and I I don't think she was stiff. That I don't think there was any rigor or anything. There wasn't time for that. Sure, but they, because that's interesting because the, they said she was cold. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, and then Michael Peterson has given a second story. And I think he gave it, or I think it was inadvertently included in um, the staircase where he said he went out to turn off the lights and found her when he came back in. Um, now, that may have been what he initially told paramedics. Mm-hmm. And then later, the we sat by the pool for hours, and I fell asleep, or, or whatever it was, was something he invented for the staircase. Oh, really? That's not the story he told <laughs> initially. Because yeah. I remember, yeah, the story that I mean, I thought that's what he told Doctor Phil too, was that they were out by the pool, hanging out, just you know, as you do in your family. Correct. Um, more, more likely than not, because the. I went out to turn off the lights and came in and found her dead is inconsistent mm-hmm. with the state of the body. So he has to change the narrative. Okay. So then it becomes she came in and I fell asleep and I came in and that's when I found her. Mm-hmm. So... um that is pretty much that's kind of what we know so we don't get a a firm complete story from michael peterson sure and um we don't have any idea on time because he doesn't offer a time. He doesn't say we went out at 10 o'clock, we went out at 11 o'clock. We know she was on the computer between 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because, I mean, that's the only, yeah, the only thing we can narrow down is that she died between 11 and 2 and 240. Yeah. So um, now there's one other interesting thing. Uh, it wasn't covered in the staircase, but it's become a feature it was in the Dr. Oz interview and and it was uh uh presented post conviction is the owl theory 
and it's gotten a lot of traction on the internet. Yeah, it does it, love owls. <laughs> it was uh, product of a an attorney neighbor of the Petersons who followed the case and noticed mention of a microscopic feather or feathers piece or pieces of wood and the appearance of the wounds on the back of Kathleen's head. And from all of that, he put together the owl theory, that Kathleen was somehow attacked by an owl. She was dazed. She was injured. She goes back in the house. She's trying to go upstairs in flimsy flip-flops and falls on the stairs. Mm-hmm and is bleeding profusely from the savage owl wounds and dies. Yeah. Yeah, and that that may have just won the award for the weakest damn uh, the weakest damn argument I think I've heard on this uh on this show. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, I I will say one thing that's in, something that's important to mention is that is a theory that was developed on appeal. So, spoiler alert again, Michael Peterson was initially convicted of this murder. All signs pointed to murder, and we've already pointed out a lot of the big inconsistencies. She had multiple lacerations on the back of her head. Her injuries were not consistent with fall down the stairs, right? Correct. Um, so, that, you know, there was a pretty there, – there was a lot going on that was not in his favor. The owl no. theory was not presented to the jury that convicted to, that convicted him. I think that's just important. But it was pre- it it wasn't presented to the jury, you're correct. But it was he went to David Rudolph and right. Tom Mayer and he did present it to them and they elected not to present it to the jury. Okay. Because they knew it would So that would be why and then he post conviction he was like, Well, we've got nothing to lose and he tried to pursue it for Michael Peterson, it was denied. But one of the problems I've always had with it is, is it's so highly speculative because it claims Kathleen went out front at like one o'clock in the morning to put out reindeer and was attacked by an by this owl. Who apparently huh. that time of year is mating season and they can be somewhat aggressive. I'm I'm curious. Did you send me that? Um, that is that a, a brief or what? I know that I don't know if you sent me that because I, I I really should have. That, that I sent. This is my updated, and this is just my my issues with everything I've read about it. Sure. Um, you know, he says she went out front to uh, put out a reindeer that's pictured on the front lawn because I, I have a problem with some of these armchair investigators they look and they're yeah. like a picture it's a reindeer so she had to have gone out at one o'clock in the morning and put that reindeer out there yeah i mean that's the i'm curious how that's being presented to the court in the appeal right um are they saying this is what's possible because this is the problem you and i've talked about this. yeah a million and one different things possible um, right. We could sit here all night talking about what's possible. What we have evidence for is what we need to talk about, and there there is so. almost zero evidence for the owl theory. Almost zero. Yeah. But 
Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think he's produced, while he's a produced pictures and video of attacks by owls. In fact, there was, I think there was one vicious one in Portland, Oregon that they called Al Capone. Yeah. Um, they, he, he hasn't produced any evidence of similar attacks of people in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. in that area. Um, interestingly, you and I talked about this yesterday. Michael Peterson never said anything about hearing or seeing an owl or an aggressive owl at any time on the 8th or the 9th. And you and I talked, if an owl attacked Kathleen, it would have been making noise. Right. And, there, and he would have some, heard. Right. And there's also some speculation from kind of, like you said, uh, armchair investigators that the the reason that the crime scene is so vicious and violent on the staircase is because that owl actually followed her into the house. Um, that's why there are some spots on this staircase where there's like, you know, there's there's blood missing as if something was there. Uh-huh. Um, and so they will argue that that's because she landed on the owl. And I, as anybody has ever gotten a bird in their house, that sucker is not going, you know, you, it's a pain to get it out. <laughs> um, and right. so that, that's also, to me, where the owl theory falls apart because it it doesn't make sense that the crime scene would be so vicious unless the owl did follow her into the house and continued to attack her. And if that had happened, imagine the owl would still be there because, <laughs> you know, they, they don't, mm-hmm. they fly up, they fly up and they, there's right. no way the bird would have left And the they perch somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus the fact that there's, you know, thought that she would have landed on the owl or injured in some way, you know, I just, it's just too perfect of an of an accident. Right. I'm, I'm not buying and that. I looked on, you know, several resources, and there has been no confirmation ever that the microscopic feather referred to belonged to any type of owl, barred or otherwise. And Peterson, um, yeah, Peterson's attorney shortly after the Alford plea, filed a motion requesting examination of those feathers or, trans, or sending those, exam, those feathers for examination to the Smithsonian. So the owl theory doesn't even have any corroboration or substantiation that an owl was involved. Right, and I was. It's important to state. I don't think we stated this out loud, but uh, the owl theory is is basically derived from the fact that they pulled microscopic, as in you cannot see it with the human eye, but microscopic, and a microscopic owl feather from Kathleen's hair, which I was a microscopic about the, feather. And feather. he says owl. He 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 decided Uh-oh. it was an owl. Ah, uh, I, I think that. That's even better yeah. because you got to consider, I was thinking about this all day, you know, if we set up the crime scene, you've got the staircase, which is obviously the most impressive part of the scene, but there is also a drop of blood outside the front door. Is that right? Correct. And so the only thing that makes sense to me is that some kind of tussle would have happened outside, which would explain there being some of the debris they were talking about, like, I guess a twig or, or a 
some kind of like ground debris and then also that microscopic other and then you know the altercation continues inside by the staircase uh right that that's that comes to me if if she hits the ground before she goes inside uh, that tells me that that altercation probably started outside and then went inside uh and that would account for what they found in her hair right but that drop of blood Nobody has said it came from Kathleen outside. It's a drop of blood. Peterson could have transferred it out there. While he was cleaning up? While he he was cleaning cleaning it up. uh, While he was cleaning up, if he was cleaning up, it could have been transferred on the way out by one of the people that came into the house with Todd. He brought three friends when he came back to the house that night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it could have been it it could have been not even related to Kathleen's death. Mm-hmm. It could I'm, have been Clayton or Todd. You know, I I don't know that it didn't. I think a lot of times again. These pictures are out there and people see it and they 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 form a conclusion mm-hmm. and they don't even you know sometimes you don't ha- you don't always have access to lab reports like in this particular case lab reports I've searched I've scoured and I haven't found anything other mm-hmm. than the autopsy report right um you know, we don't have access to the complete Durham police investigatory files. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff. I can't say what was tested and I can't say what wasn't tested. Sure. Although sure. I will say there was some DNA testing done on Kathleen's clothing, contrary right. to the false statements of David Rudolph and Michael Peterson and Michael Peterson's subsequent attorneys who actually tried to get the case dismissed. Mm-hmm. And now I understand why Candace Samparini did not want the Durham County DA at that time defending the conviction in the post-conviction hearings because they were not prepared. Right. So. Yeah. um, And uh, so – that was again the owl theory was filed in 2009 and denied and Michael Peterson's attorney is seeking now to have the microscopic feather feathers tested I think visually this guy thinks it's an owl feather mm-hmm. but hey, it, to me it doesn't matter an owl, and, and I think he's I think he's gotten some experts to back him up uh, but interestingly, I don't think he has an MD who's confirmed that those wounds, in fact, could have been made by talons. Mm-hmm. They look like talons to the layperson eye. Yeah, they should. I will say, whenever you use theory and you look at this diagram of the lacerations in the back of your head, your brain goes, "That makes sense. It it does yeah. look, you know, it does it does satisfy that that itch." For sure. But one must wonder if that were the case, then why would there not be any mention 
of the resemblance to talons in the autopsy report. Well, there's also the mm-hmm. fact that I imagine this happens, this bird is on you long enough to make those seven lacerations. Are you not grabbing at it with your hands? Because she has none of those kinds of scratches on her arms, legs, hands. No. But nothing like that. Um, in fact, no lacerations on arms, legs, or hands. And I would think that if this was, if you were viciously attacked in that way, you would have your hands up there. Mm-hmm. And an owl wouldn't miss an opportunity, you know, to go at your hands. <laughs> so that's, that's suspicious to me. So... All right, well, we get to the trial, and um, not mentioned in the staircase, or, or barely mentioned in the staircase, are the fact that um, one of the reasons that this was thought to be homicide rather than accident is because the injuries Kathleen sustained were not consistent with a fall downstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, although Peterson's defense proposed a fall up the stairs, and I've uh, done right. that, um, and you, I didn't end up at the bottom of the stairs <laughs> hitting my head multiple times against walls and moldings and stairs and risers. Um, right. I basically fell on my face. Fall up the stairs, your forward <laughs> momentum, everything is forward, everything is your body weight is a, is ahead of your your um mm-hmm. center of gravity so you would think that there would be something again to the hands arms elbows face uh there is a laceration right. a small abrasion i think or something like that on her face but i'm thinking chin nose cheeks um if you just visualize falling forward mouth yeah and arms and hands right um, and, you know, the the interesting thing is that she, pardon me, fell up the stairs, but then went backwards, hit the molding, hit the wall multiple times, uh, fell and hit the risers. Right. And that's and what that strikes. Doesn't, yeah, that's what Coming down me. the stairs. I might be able to be sold on that coming down the stairs, yeah. But, but when they, if they are going to argue that she's up the stairs, I don't see that level of of damage happening from falling. Right. Up the stairs. <laughs> and uh, the other thing that they didn't mention in the first staircase, they mentioned it in the second, I think, because they didn't really have a choice. Um, there was blood found from Kathleen found on Michael Short. Right. And it was found like inside a leg uh, near the crotch. On the on the back, right? It was like on the, on back. the back. So imagine the, the inner hem of some shorts behind your leg. So mm-hmm. then imagine how does blood get there inside your shorts? Yeah. And it's not like dipped down into it. It's a splatter on the inside in the back. Correct. So that's just want to create a visualization because that that is honestly super important and that would not that would not occur if you found your loved one bleeding and down on the floor and you cradled their head in your lap well and consider too you know okay i might be able to say there's some blood splatter if she was coughing blood 
um, if she was alive. But from what we Correct. can tell, he, but between the time he found her, allegedly found her at 2.40 a.m. where she is breathing and the time the EMS get there, um, she's long dead. So we know that at 2.40 she was definitely dead. Um, so it's, it's when he, that means that when he allegedly found her, she would not have been breathing or coughing to the point that blood could right. be splattered that way. And she had no mouth injuries in her mouth. She had no blood in her lungs. So she wouldn't have been coughing yes. up blood anyway. That isn't, yes, exactly. That I almost so, forgot about that. She didn't have, yeah, she wasn't coughing up uh, blood. And another interesting thing is on the behavioral panel. Yeah. Um, they actually said on the 911 call, it sounds like he's walking around the whole time. Oh, yeah. He sounds exhausted. Like he's yeah. got to catch his breath. He absolutely sounds exhausted. Or like he's feigning hysteria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, are, are you about to get to the sweatpants? No. So... So the, another very damning piece of evidence that we just talked about the shorts, you've got blood spatter on the inside back part of the short. That doesn't make sense. We don't understand how that would have gotten there um, in any way other than being splattered onto it, which you know, we can think about a million ways that would have happened. But then on the back side, the, Kathleen is wearing sweatpants and his bloody shoe print is on the back side of her sweatpants. Now, if you look at the crime scene photo where he found, where they found her, where the way she was laid out, she was laid out face up. Found her, even if he had stepped on her by accident or maybe his foot got on her pants while he was maneuvering around her, that would have been on top of, on, on the top of the pants. Um, mm-hmm. So it is extremely damning to me that his bloody footprint is in the back of her sweatpants. Right. And that, I, I don't know in what way um, the defendants have tried to, re- to, to write that off. I'm not sure. I don't know if you have any information on that. Uh, basically, it's kind of like bait and switch. If you try to talk about that, they'll, they'll start talking about Dwayne Deaver Lyon. Yeah, so that's where I think you were trying to get into as the spatter expert. We, we talk a, a lot of talk about these shorts. <laughs> right. These shorts are important. Yeah. But, you know, that's what they tried to do with the new trial, is they tried to say you couldn't trust any of this information because it came from Dwayne Deaver, which isn't true. Yeah, so why don't you, know, why there don't you are explain multiple that, um, like people. what happened here? Because I think that's... Well, I, I, and I'm now. getting ahead, actually. Oh, oh, um, sorry. <laughs> let's, let's, get into, let's get in Dwayne Deaver yeah. later. Um, so we have, um, I did mention we had blood spatter and the blood in the stairway observed by multiple people prior to even investigators arriving because the the paramedics were there before the detectives got there. Mm -hmm. Um, They also observed cleanup efforts had been made, but I think it was kind of like he was trying to clean up and trying to clean up, and it was like, oh, shit. It's just worse than, you know, he realized, and and it was going to take him forever to clean it up. Right. 
And uh, they also found luminol footprints. And he was barefoot when authorities got there, and these were like tennis shoe prints. Yeah, and it was a, it was a so tennis they had been cleaned up. Wow. Yeah, it was a tennis shoe footprint that was on the back of her, her mm-hmm. sweatpants too. So now this was uh, footprints that they found with luminol shoe prints going to the utility sink in the mm-hmm. laundry room and standing yeah, in front of the utility that. sink. I had not heard about that. That was that. another that seemed... thing. I think I read it in one of the I read it in one of the briefs. That sounds um, important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's why they didn't talk about it in the staircase. Um I was really I was really upset with the staircase in the in the court proceedings because they could have done a lot more with the court proceedings and they they should have done a more balanced presentation sure yeah, that's that's um, huge I mean, that honestly i was i was watching the staircase with my boyfriend who was very much on the side of michael peterson you know because the, the 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 staircase was very well produced and um if i had if that had come up that uh, well we have evidence that he washed away some shoe prints which is what you're saying when you say luminol footprints going to the sink um mm-hmm. that would have been open closed you know <laughs> right uh so <clears throat> the defense theory was basically that uh Kathleen fell while walking up the stairs causing multiple impacts to the back of her body, which is not how physics works. I mean, right. I'm not good at science, but even I know that, against multiple surfaces in the staircase because they were proposing uh, impacts against molding, impacts against walls, impacts against stair risers. Um, they had Henry Lee as a blood spatter expert, uh, and I think this was right before he took evidence from Phil Spector's house and got caught and his reputation went down the toilet. Um, Mm -hmm. This may have been right before the Spector trial. Mm -hmm. Because you notice he wasn't there for the post-conviction. Right. And uh, the Peterson had a DNA expert and this also brings up again if he had a DNA expert, why was there no DNA testing done on his behalf? Mm-hmm. Um, the jury actually, in this particular case, the jury deliberated for four days. Which says okay. to me that they not only took their job very seriously, but they very carefully considered all of the all of the evidence presented by each side um, before have, rendering their verdict. Do they do exit interviews in, in criminal juries? I don't know how all of that works. They, I know I'm a trial paralegal. It, but. Varies, <laughs> it, it varies from state to state. In some states, you can uh, in most states, basically, jurors can talk to you if they want. They don't have to. Sure. Um, I, but I don't know what North Carolina, because some states prohibit it, because sure. they don't want a criminal jury impeaching its own verdict. 
Sure. I'm just I'm just curious because I know we do that in civil juries. We do exit interviews, and mm-hmm. um, that can offer a lot of insight. Um, Correct. About things that maybe you didn't think would stick out that did, or the opposite. Um, so I'd, yeah. I'd I'd be very curious to know if there were exit interviews. Yeah, I I don't know if North Carolina allows you. Some states it's absolutely prohibited. Mm-hmm. Like Florida, they say if you want to talk, you're free to talk to whoever you want to. If you don't want to talk, nobody can compel you. The only one that can compel you is me, and I'm not going to do that. That's what the judge mm-hmm. tells them. Um, and Peterson was sentenced to life without parole. Right. So he went to prison in North Carolina. Um, I think a wrongful death was filed suit was filed in 2002, but it couldn't proceed until after his criminal trial ended. And then they went through about five years. Um, he was ordered to give a deposition. And I think it was at that time that his attorneys decided, Mike, you don't have shit. She ain't going to get shit. So let's just settle. And they settled for $25 million. Mm-hmm. Because he's got a, it's a settlement. He doesn't have to admit liability. So he agrees to a $25 million settlement. Which they'll never see. Uh, I guess he didn't, he didn't realize is that now he's out of prison, but anything <laughs> he makes goes to Caitlin. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good on Caitlin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Um, and direct appeal, uh, basically Peterson alleged that the third search warrant, which was for the computer equipment, was deficient uh, and lacked sufficient probable cause. While the Court of Appeal agreed, they found that a lot of the evidence that was admitted from the prior two warrants that was legally obtained was cumulative of what was entered through the deficient warrant. So there was no harm, Mm -hmm. no harm, no foul. Um, they uh, found that the misconduct and sexual orientation evidence, the stuff about the male escorts and all those shenanigans, uh, was admissible to rebut Peterson's claim in opening that he and Kathleen had this idyllic relationship. They... um, also did not find error with the admission of the uh, information regarding Elizabeth Ratliff's death in Germany because Michael Peterson knows another woman who died at the bottom of a staircase in Germany and Michael Peterson ended up the guardian of her daughters and inheriting all of her worldly possessions and goods. Mm -hmm. And perhaps she wasn't worth as much as he thought she was. And I think what's kind of interesting here, though, is it's very easy to look at this and say, oh, it's two staircase deaths. But I think by all accounts, Kathleen Peterson was she I don't think that she died falling down the staircase. I think that the evidence points to her being potentially beaten to death or. um, Yes. You know, well, I think maybe he pushed her on the last those couple stair steps towards the end. But that's. Or kicked her. I think that I personally think that's where the 
the footprint on the back of her comes from is that he uh-huh. kicked her down the stairs? Yeah. I don't know that she ever got – I don't know that she got much past the um, fifth or sixth step up. Right. I, I don't think – I think that everything happened within that – in that uh, doorway, wall, yeah, those I, first – five or six stairs. I think it all happened right there in that stair. Well, I agree. maybe bled out the door a little bit, but then ended up back in. Uh, and I was, you and I talked this morning. I had my epiphany after my alarm went off this morning. What if he didn't hit her with an instrument? What if he just banged her head against the floor? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That it's it's tough because of the fact that she didn't have any fractures, or I don't think there were impressions on the skull in the autopsy report. But there was a, a cartilage fracture, that you said, and, and the, I, I just and the thyroid in the neck. And so that's what I'm trying to. So that is kind of yeah. where the jaw, in between where your jawbone meets your yeah. ear, right? Like in that soft tissue underneath that bend of your jawbone, I think. Right. And from what I understand, the lacerations on the back of the head went through to, through the dura to the skull. Okay. In other words, they were, they were deep enough that you could see the skull. Mm-hmm. That so, makes me think that it's something with kind of, I would say necessarily a sharp edge, but definitely not total round. Right. And, um, but repeated pounding you know, that's what Peterson's also, that's what Peterson's accidental fall is mm-hmm. striking her head multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And, this is, and the only way but, that he consistent is she fell from the top of the stairs and then it hit all of the steps coming down. But defense doesn't even argue that. They argue that she fell up the stairs. So that, that's correct. Part. Plus, she didn't correct. have any injuries in her legs or her torso which you would expect to see in a fall down a stairs. She didn't have a broken wrist. She didn't have a separated shoulder. Yeah. Um, you know, she didn't have any broken bones. So just, you uh, can just argue lack of skull down. fractures <laughs> is, in, you know, you think you expect skull fractures, but I would expect at least a broken finger. Sure. Because at some point Anything. she's going to try and break her fall. Right. And that's how bones break. Right. Um, and then, uh, and I think Elizabeth Ratliff, she was wearing her coat and boots. Mm. So she wasn't dressed for bed. And Peterson was seen skulking away from her apartment at about midnight. So I think, like I said, I think he did. I, and he, because he was telling people, when they got there the next day before she'd been examined even, that she had a cerebral hemorrhage. Right. <clears throat> and it's like, well, how do you know that? You're not a doctor. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, Stories, man. Um, he also complained about the admission of the financial status evidence, but that, I think, was what he would inherit it would inherit in the event of Kathleen's death did serve as a potential motive. It's always relevant. It doesn't matter whether you're guilty or innocent. That's 
your finances are always relevant in the case like that it's can't imagine ever being deemed irrelevant right and i you know and i just i think if if she had the last straw maybe you know she could forgive claiming purple hearts and i'm sure because he is a storyteller that she heard a lot of stories that turned out to not be uh, that turned out to be fictional Mm-hmm. Uh, so she, I'm, I'm sure during their marriage and during their relationship, she had forgiven a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just Michael. But you get to a point where the final straw becomes the final straw. Right. And we know that she accessed his email that night. Mm-hmm. Correct. And discovered. And he had, he had some very spicy, very saucy emails with other men right because apparently he's got a type of other men is military looking men Hmm. interesting yeah um so uh and he used to he was very buff at one time i don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of him even into his 40s and 50s because he worked out a lot. Um, and I think he let himself go for the staircase so that he looked too um, incapable mm-hmm. of of doing anything to anybody. Um, and then they also had a complaint about the prosecutor's closing argument because she did a couple of times free to black cross the line and seemed to be kind of vouching for state's witnesses. Yeah. Um, And that was, but they also found that the judges, you know, the defense objections and the judges curative instructions were sufficient and there was no error. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I don't know my reading of the direct appeal opinion. I don't know that the appellate court really actually said the third warrant could never be sufficient. Um, so I don't know whether that would have any impact. While it would probably give the defense ammunition to have evidence from that warrant suppressed in the future, mm-hmm. I don't think that they actually ruled that that should have been suppressed. Right, and I think we talked about this briefly too. They could, there are other ways around that, right? You know, there, there's definitely yeah. other ways that they can make that admissible. Um, that's not something that's really too much to to worry about. Um, right, and there, there are other the ways that you can get the escort, the male escort witness on the stand. There are other, it doesn't have to be through the, that email yeah. alone. And in fact, the the stuff that Peterson had printed out in the Bonilla envelope that was seized as part of one of the other warrants. Yeah. So there, I mean, that's it. So, so, okay, we get rid of the warrant where they could see the emails, but we're going to add the, the information we were this other valid warrant that's not disputed. And now you have your witness again. Yeah. And the argument might have been made of inevitable, inevitable discovery because they would have had those emails that Peterson printed out. 
and they could have used those emails as probable cause for a base as a basis for probable cause for a another search warrant for the computer. Right. Well, that's but that's so, what I wonder though because all of this is happening. What is this is happening post conviction, right? The motion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think. I don't know how this works in criminal law, but I would imagine that even if you're being granted a new trial, you can't just begin discovery again. Like I, I would, I would think that you wouldn't be allowed to just redo discovery, right? Like I would think that you would have to basically stick with what you've got. How does that work exactly? Well, I think that there is, um, there is probably any new investigation that might be done. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's interesting, and a lot of people have this misconception. Once you're convicted, or once a person is convicted and their case goes direct appeal, the police can't do additional testing or DNA testing or anything like that. They have, they're found. Sure. And went to trial with. Right. Now, if a new trial is ordered, they can do DNA testing. Okay. That's because if they were to do. DNA testing, good or bad, the results would become new evidence automatically. Right. And a lot of people think, you know, that when they have these contested criminal cases like Kevin Cooper, Rodney Reed, well, you know, why doesn't they why doesn't the state just test the DNA? They can test the DNA. No, they can't. Cuz the results are going to be new evidence. Right. Regardless whether they're good or bad. Um, yeah. In limited situations, they can agree to limited testing. The parties, both sides can agree and have it done. Um, that was done in the Rodney Reed case, and the results were not exculpatory. So the Innocence Project pretends it didn't happen. Right, and, and then you would also, there's also, I think we brought up this point before, um, if just if defense wants to cry about any evidence not being processed for some reason, what the general public has to understand is that the defense could have tested it on their own if they wanted to. It's not like it was locked and hidden Correct. away from them. Um, so Correct. that is kind of a look over here, don't look there, look over here tactic mm-hmm. saying, look at how they are mishandling this case. Well, no, you have the right to inspect and, and report on and, and review any evidence that, that is, is brought against you. Correct. So if they want to cry about it, they've cried about it while they were calling their own Correct. expert to analyze it. And, you know, that's, that's something that's very important with Michael Peterson because he did try to get his, uh, uh, when he was successful on post-conviction, he tried to get the new trial, the, the charges dismissed prior to the new trial because the state didn't DNA test evidence and the evidence had not been properly stored and therefore DNA testing now would not be reliable. Right. But they could um, have tested that from the beginning if they wanted it. He or or he could have or David Rudolph could have filed a motion to have the state test X, Y, and Z. Right. Or but to see, have X, Y, and Z released to his expert for testing or to have his expert come observe while the state tested. There are multiple avenues that could have been pursued. 
right. if they wanted to test the shoes, if they wanted to test the shorts. And but the a- reason they didn't want to do that is because they knew there wasn't going to be any unknown third-party DNA. Right. The only thing it was going to do is, is, is reveal her DNA or his DNA, both of which would be kind of useless. Um, Correct. You know, being that they live together. And this is the thing. We talked about this again, too. Is that a, a tactic, a really good legal tactic, in whether it's civil, criminal, anything, is whenever you don't have a lot to go off of, you know, we don't, we don't have a good alibi for Michael Peterson. We don't have – there's not a lot for him to grasp at, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you need to talk about something else. You have to point the directions away from the evidence. This is where, this is where we get the owl theory and the fact, the thought that he was sleeping. It's you have to, and then this is this explains again why they didn't test evidence that very well could have been tested by them. You know, it, because it is a better mm. legal, better legal strategy to say, look at them and how they have been negligent in this than it is to say we've done our due diligence and all of the facts support, you know, like whenever you hear a defense team talking about facts, here's the evidence, here's the witnesses, these are the the hard facts, that is a good, you know, a good indication that they are confident. But when they are just pulling straws out of thin air, which this defense is doing, they're constantly diverting you away from the hard facts, and that is because, Mm -hmm. There is no room for them in the hard facts. There's no room for them to to win anybody over there. They have to right. center their defense on sowing doubt because they don't have any other straws to grab. Yeah, I think a good uh, a good saying that I've heard for years is when the law is on your side, argue the law. When the facts are on your side, argue the facts. Yeah. <laughs> when neither is on your side, just argue. Just argue. Yep. Exactly. And, that's exactly and there's a what person in our office that that fits to a T. <laughs> and he's a pretty good lawyer. And I mean it with 100% love. But <laughs> he's a very good lawyer. <laughs> he is. I, I do not mean that in a derogatory way. But now I when I hear that, I will conjure his image. Oh, absolutely. But, yeah, that's, that that's fits. <laughs> This fits that case very well. Is that you sometimes um, I, I that rings so true to me watching this defense is that they're constantly leaning on the what aboutisms, you know, the all yeah. the different possibilities and and things that just aren't supported by the evidence. Right, or portraying Michael Peterson as the victim. Yeah, which is how he would like it to be. Um, mm-hmm. It's you know we wow. we we see that from the kinds of stories he writes plus the Purple Heart and um you know yeah that that would he is yeah, yeah. so uh, initially Peterson had a couple of state post conviction claims the first one dealt with a a tire iron that was apparently found somewhere in the neighborhood at some time which Peterson's attorneys alleged was not disclosed to the defense and therefore he he was entitled to a new trial. Um, but because the state never tried to claim that a tire iron was a weapon used in the, in the murder, uh, that didn't fly. Uh, the owl theory 
the attorney filed it in 2009, and it didn't fly either. Right. So then in um, about 2010, 2011, SBI analyst Dwayne Deaver got himself into a pickle. <laughs> he, uh, I, I, and I think, you know, I, I don't blame him necessarily, but I think, first of all, in the Greg Taylor case, he got defensive. And so instead of, of, acknowledging that he may have made mistakes here and there, he tried to defend and he tried to obfuscate. The facts weren't on his side. The law wasn't on his side. So he just decided to argue. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Greg Taylor is an interesting case. This is a guy, he and his buddy are out buying crack, smoking crack. They decide to go off-roading. Truck gets stuck. And as they're walking away from the truck, they see a dead woman's body. Do they call police and say, oh, my God? No. They just keep walking. And they go Mm -hmm. their merry little ways. And then the next day, Taylor comes back to get his truck. But his truck is now part of a murder scene because it's there in close proximity to the victim and there is what appears to be blood on the truck and if I recall my research when this initially broke correctly she had some injuries that could be consistent with having been struck by a vehicle so unfortunately Greg Taylor gets caught up in a murder case Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, while he makes it sound like it was all out of his control, it probably really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, had when they when they allegedly innocently find the body the night before, had they reported it, they might not have ended up caught up in it because she would have either been dead long before they found her that night mm-hmm. or they would have been able to, you know, say the truck was not involved. Right. But they didn't do that. And then I, I don't think he was entirely cooperative or the story that he told just wasn't, it. you know, it was kind of the crackhead You know, I don't know if you've ever heard a person who's using drugs try to explain anything. Um, and he was yeah, using drugs I mean, the night before. So sure. he maybe wasn't really clear-minded. Um, but, you know, he ended up being convicted. And part of that was because apparently there were confirmatory tests that were not reported on the reports issued by Deaver. Completely separate case, uh, not give a completely, 
Well, explain that a little further, sorry. This is one thing, well, this is one thing that I've always kind of had a question about because I know in other cases and in other disciplines, first of all, if you reported every negative you found during the course of your, your testings and examinations, your reports would be 50 pages long all the time. Right. Right, and you can always subpoena so, that information separately if you if you would like that information. Um, right, as like an and generally in a in a in a case uh, if there's blood spatter blood, the defense has someone who can help them, mm-hmm. and that person can review the reports and can say, well, I don't see any mention of these confirmatory tests being done. So when that expert testifies. You need to ask them about these confirmatory tests mm-hmm. because if he's reporting a presumptive test, and I mean, if you read a book, what the presumptive tests are and what the confirmatory tests are, it's not really difficult to educate yourself even without an expert's guidance. Sure. To say, well, did you do, and and in this particular case in Greg Taylor, it was called a Takayama test. Mm-hmm. So basically he did a presumptive test, which came out positive, the presence of blood or the potential presence of blood. And then he did different confirmatory tests. And the confirmatory test was Takayama, which was actually negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That's one of the things I don't understand. But somehow or another, the defense attorney didn't ask. Now, I would say instead of being Dwayne Deaver's fault, it's actually the defense attorney's fault. It's inefficient, ineffective assistance of counsel. Because obviously the defense attorney was not uh, – did not ask the right questions – when Diva was on the stand. Because if they had a positive Takayama, it would be reported. So, and I, I think this was in the days before DNA or in the early days when you needed a lot more material to test for DNA. Um, so then... Peterson filed a motion complaining about Dwayne Deaver, and a lot of things that were brought in through that motion are things that actually appear during the trial, during the course of the trial, in the staircase. Mm -hmm. Questions about the methodology in the videos. Right. Um, And at one point, Rudolph even has his expert saying, oh, no, he's doing that all wrong. So, um, and he brought in a lot of experts who are, you know, pretty well known, although one of them, like I said earlier today, Tom Bevel, he has been, you know, the uh, unhappy recipient of a Got an Innocent Man Convicted Award in the David Camp case. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, now he's on the other end. Right. I think we're... I think we're going a little bit too far sometimes 
in labeling things, labeling mistakes as perjury. Sure. And giving them intent. Sure. We have to remember, too, at, that at any time, the defense in this case, you know, can... If they had any issue with the blood spatter testing that was done, they could have. I mean, did they hire a a a an They had Henry Lee. Robert, I okay. say Michael Peterson needs to write letters to Henry Lee and his other um and the other experts and say I demand refunds because y'all didn't do shit. Yeah, because if he that's the that's the thing. It's the whole point. You pay these guys tens of thousands of dollars to do what they do and um i mean if if beaver's work was so shy, his own defense experts couldn't point that out you know effectively mm-hmm. to a jury i definitely i agree with you there that's kind of a an issue and sadly it, it turns into a, a um a reversal for my right. um you know dang i mean i'd be he's lost if that's the case, he lost how many years of his life, you know, because these experts couldn't couldn't figure out that this guy didn't know what he was doing. If that, well, if that was the case, I don't know. That's what they allege. In spite, that's what they allege. But in spite of, I think he would. If, I think if you'd taken Deaver's testimony out a hundred percent, I still think he would have been convicted. Because the more damning evidence was Kathleen's injuries and the volume of blood. Yeah. I, it doesn't no, I matter agree. how you interpret the blood. Okay. It doesn't matter what the inter- – it doesn't matter splatter. It doesn't matter where where she was struck. And, like, I think Deaver inartfully uh, framed a lot of it because he talked about in space. But what he's meaning is that Kathleen wasn't – on the floor or against a wall when something struck her. Her head was in, it was out in space mm-hmm. when she was struck. That's what he meant. That was how I interpreted it. But I think it was a little inartful for him. Right. He should have said, instead of saying she was in space, her head was in space, she said she was standing in the center of the stair. Mm-hmm. when she was struck. And I think if he hadn't done, if he hadn't inartfully framed it, it would have not been as susceptible to the criticism by these other experts as well. Mm-hmm. But all these experts were available, and in a lot of states, none of it would have resulted in a new trial mm-hmm. because all of it could have been discovered and presented by the defense at most he might have been successful if he claimed ineffective assistance because these experts were there and could have helped Mm -hmm. but um, most of it most of what he was doing was impeachment right and generally that's not because the time for impeachment is at trial and that's that's the but thing. The scandal, we're talking about you have to point. Yeah. In the, you have to point point in another direction because they, there is no other spot to grab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but the scandal surrounding Deaver, uh, he had been fired by the FBI. Um, apparently, you know, he had done a couple things, and he'd also, 
he again was defensive and tried to blame the culture at FBI right for his missteps yeah and, and that's interesting and, too like because you and I work with experts and we understand what that process is like and I just doesn't seem mm-hmm. like I mean when you do that kind of work for a living there there is a certain kind of laissez-faire culture about it um, plus you aren't right. you aren't directly connected to the murder it's not like you're her sister you know jumping for joy whenever you finally get a positive um result it it you're you're a third party who has no direct relation to it and you do it for a living so i i think that's pretty weak because i think people would be shocked at what the culture in law firms is like much much less you know right an expert it's the same thing but you know that's another thing too is that nobody has asked like they had that video at the time of trial prior to trial yep she was on the stand David Rudolph could have said, why did you do that? And she could have said, we had been doing this for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we thought we had it. We thought we figured it out. And nothing. And then all of a sudden, we finally figured out. You yeah, know, we I mean, tried we different. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it may have been, it may have been, I, I didn't see any, any uh, audio, I didn't hear any audio from that video. It may have been, he, he may have been, this is the last time we're doing this. So she could have been jumping for joy because they were freaking done for the day. Mm-hmm. And it may not have been, she wasn't happy about the result of the test. It's just that we've been at this for hours and we're finally going to go eat or we're finally going to go get something to drink or I had to pee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that wasn't uh, that wasn't jumping for joy. That was my pee-pee dance. Yep. You know, but he never asked, but then he assigns her state of mind. Sure. Or he speculates he as have, to her state of mind. He could have when he asked talks her about, that. yeah, he should have asked her, why did you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, and he, but he doesn't want to ask her that because if she gives a logical, rational explanation, his aha moment is gone for the jury. Um, and he does that with the uh, talking about the DNA later, saying that she and Deaver diverted all the evidence from DNA, you know, DNA that could have told us something. Mm-hmm like well then you could have asked the court to have the state perform dna testing with your expert observing because i kept wondering why do they have a dna expert Mm -hmm. dna is not going to be it's not going to be conclusive it's not going to be probative to distract It's, (laughs) it's only you know it's only going to if worst case scenario it's only going to prove beyond any doubt that the blood on the shoes and the shorts belonged to Kathleen and only Kathleen. Right. And you can't use any of his DNA against them because it's, you know, he is married. They lived in the house. Right. Right. Um, So I also read, interestingly enough, in the state's appeal brief on the new trial grant that um, the judge 
Judge Hudson actually limited their ability to defend this motion. So I think he was feeling some pressure over the Orlando Hud uh, Orlando left over the Deaver situation. Perhaps even some public pressure. Because he limited the, the witnesses the state could call. He limited the areas of cross examination of Peterson's witnesses. Mm-hmm. So um I think Judge Hudson and you know, we, we hear about this from Peterson, like the game is all rigged. Well your your fucking hearing was rigged against the state. What are you complaining about? Yeah, it's important to mention that every, everything that they are complaining about are things that could very well have been fleshed out and dealt with directly at mm-hmm. or before trial. Um, and, and it yeah. is. That is just a good defense tactic. You grab for the straws that you can. <laughs> you know, you, the reason that they don't do as thorough a job as maybe they should because they know that you have to leave some fruit hanging in the event this doesn't go your way. You have to have something to reach for afterwards. Um, that is why they don't do a very big thorough job because then you, you leave everything out on the table. Well, you have to be careful with that because you, if you don't do things that you sh- easily should have, could have done, you're talking ineffective assistance of counsel. Sure. Yeah, uh, there's def- yeah, but I and I, and sometimes courts and, and and courts generally don't like that either. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes courts will have an attorney that says, "Oh yeah, I should have done this, I should have done that," and the court's like, "Well, too bad for your client that you didn't," because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not particularly egregious. Right. <laughs> your client's not going to benefit because it's almost like you're trying to set up. You're laying behind a log trying to set up an appellate issue. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you, you've got to be – it's a very fine line you've got to tread. And I, I don't think any attorney – usually attorneys are so type A, they, they really can't do it even if they want to mm-hmm. because they want to win. So they'll do everything possible to get that win. Um, but, uh, you know, I know, I know none of the ones I've ever worked with would possibly leave anything stone unturned. Mm -hmm. So, um, after several years, uh, Peterson spent a couple of years on house arrest wearing an ankle monitor and then, uh, that was removed and he was a free man awaiting his second trial. Um, after much complaining and fetching about the unfair system, um, which really made me want to puke, uh, Peterson elected to take an Alfred plea to manslaughter, which would result in a sentence be basically complete due to time already served with his first conviction. And he entered that plea on in February 2017. 
Mm-hmm. Now, it looks like prior to the plea, they did file a couple of motions trying to keep evidence out, but Judge Hudson hadn't ruled on it. Mm-hmm. In the documentary, I think you recall Judge Hudson saying, well, I have rethought and I wouldn't have let the rat with evidence in and I, you know, wouldn't let some of the sexual stuff in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, that hadn't come to pass yet. Sure. So that could have just been Judge Hudson's homage to the fact that he was appearing in a quote documentary, unquote. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but no, I think even without the blood spatter, I mean, even without an interpretation of the blood spatter. Yeah, the the physical I think Peterson evidence, would have been convicted. The physical evidence is completely there, and I, just when you look at that timeline, speaking about him saying she's breathing, and very clearly she, um, you know, was dead long before, you know, EMS got there. That's a huge red flag. The footprint on the back of her pants, that's a huge red flag. The mm-hmm. um now I did just look this up. Apparently the foot tracks you mentioned, the Manolo, um apparently they were barefoot tracks, which you did say he was barefoot when they got there. Um Okay. But it still is pretty damning that they they lead to the laundry room to in front of the the sink in the laundry room because I I wouldn't think that you're thinking about that uh, cleaning yourself off before but I don't know how long this luminol you know I don't know if if they maybe that was made you know after they were taking her body away what they were doing I don't know but they were barefoot tracks to to clear that up okay but that but they had been cleaned up yeah, uh yes, that's There a good were point. bloody that they that indicates there were bloody footprints. Yes. Going to the laundry room utility sink. Yeah. That someone cleaned up. Yes. You're right. That's a good point. That someone that someone <laughs> someone cleaned. Yes. So, um and I think they described him covered in blood. The paramedics described him covered oh, he in blood was, when he got yeah. there. Yeah, he was covered in blood. So, um, now the case has spawned uh, a a program, a parody called Trial and Error. Season one dealt with a poet whose wife is found at the bottom of a staircase with a lot of blood. And it goes through his trial and conviction. And then the last episode, spoiler alert, but I couldn't find it online and I couldn't find it anywhere, so I don't think anybody can watch it anyway. Um, at the end, a cell phone video shows her being savaged by an owl. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so it uh, stars John Lithgow as the uh, poet. And then there's apparently going, there is an HBO Max series in the works. Okay. There was a Lifetime movie with Treat Williams. And then we have the, we referred to the behavioral panel. Uh, this is for former law enforcement, law enforcement, MI6 
train people for interrogation and counter-interrogation techniques and all those interesting things. They're really very interesting. I -hmm. think the only problem is that they tend to deal with basic information about a case and they don't really corroborate or confirm any of the information. And sometimes they get that information from the defense side because I know they did this case and they talked about the owl theory and they talked about a couple of things like Peterson's story about what happened that night and didn't treat it with any skepticism. Mm -hmm. Even though they pretty much branded him a lying liar lying. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I've, I've subscribed and I've asked them to analyze David Rudolph from the Mm -hmm. staircase. Right. Uh, We'll see if that happens, but he's an, he's a lawyer. So we kind of know how that one's going to go. Yeah, and I've I've been very interested in like behavior analysis. These people that do this, um, uh, and and kind of their methodology. And what you find is that um, you actually have a hard time with people who, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to say that attorneys lie, but they do. You know, they are very skilled. Your best lawyers are very skilled at phrasing things in a in a certain way that will be believed. Um, and so that is it. it definitely creates a, uh, a, a another layer of difficulty because like um, sociopaths and um, narcissists actually tend to do very well in behavioral analysis because they have literally trained their whole lives to be good liars. <laughs> mm-hmm. And to the, I mean, to the point that they're, they're like micro, uh, the, like the, the small ways in which moved their they have learned what to hold back and what not to subconsciously. So it's, it's uh, definitely more difficult. So, all right. Well, we're in, we're in OT now, so we could be cut off by blog talk at any moment. Um, and so this was really great. Um, I look forward to seeing the HBO Max series. For sure. Uh, especially since it's being produced at a time when he's guilty but still being held out or holding himself out to the world as innocent. Mm-hmm. Now, is the trial in um, show, do you know, is it on Peacock? No, it wasn't on Peacock. I looked for it. To, that's the first thing I did this weekend after I finished the staircase. But they have Dang. season two okay. on Peacock, uh, the one with Kristen Chenoweth. Okay. Um, but they don't have the season one. Okay. Well, hopefully they'll be up so, soon. Yeah. And then I'm looking forward to see if he's allowed to have those feathers examined. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. now they've, they've broadened it. It's not just an owl that they're looking for. It's any raptor. <laughs> Although, oh. as I understand it, hawks and falcons are diurnal. So they're not active at night. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, but we'll see how that goes. That's <laughs> a pterodactyl. I mean, the, way this is gone, the way this is gone, I mean, anything's possible. 
Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, well, thank you so much, Michelle. This was so great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a good time. And uh, come across, well, we're going to do the one from Mobile. I'm going to get the names tomorrow. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you'll have enough content for that. It's so open shut and it's not a, you know, it's not one of these, like, it's not really disputed in any way, but it is very right. <laughs> But, you know, it, it, we could talk about your friends more than anything else. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and, look at uh, it and tell me if there's anything interesting to discuss, especially from, like, a litigation standpoint. I would love to go into that because, you know, what what ended up happening was, I mean, the guy turned himself in and accepted guilty, and I believe he's even got, like, the, I don't know how this works, I'm pretty sure he even has death penalty. Mm. Well, then it's automatically appeal. If, he's, if he got the death penalty, it's automatically appealable. Well, no, he he was guilty and accepted the death penalty. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I but I don't know. Some states, you I, I, in some yeah. states, if you plead guilty, you still have to go through sentencing, and it's still appealed. Well, so, yeah, I mean, if you want to find Whether that you want out, it my, or not. My, my understanding is the guy is not fighting, literally has not fought and will not fight anything, which I respect and appreciate as a person, like, directly. Yeah. Um, but you know, the long and short of it is just that he was um, on meth. Uh, his girlfriend was staying with family members. That includes a couple of my friends um, to, to get away from him because he was, like, abusive. Yeah. And he went to go find her on meth and axe murdered the whole family. <laughs> what is his name? Oh, my God. I don't even know. I can find it real quick. Um or if you just know his last name. I don't I don't even know that. Or her name. Uh, I don't know her name. One second. I'll find it. Okay. I mean her I don't know the girlfriend's name. Um let's see here. Oh goodness. Yeah. So it's Do his name is Derek. Wow, Derek Deerman, D E A R M A N. Yep, sentenced to death. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's just a very sad. I will look into all it. around because I I won't I won't try to like sympathize with the guy, but like I said, I I have to respect the fact that he has not fought it. At all, um, he understands mm-hmm. he's a piece of human garbage that deserves what he gets, um, and you know that's that's all I can get. That's all I can get. Yeah. All right. Well, I will look. Uh, I'll look into that, and um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be really it'd be interesting to talk about, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a very sad case. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. Mm-hmm. All right, Michelle. Well, thank you so much, and I'll see you tomorrow. Yep. Alrighty. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. Yeah. Bye. Wow, what an episode! I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that, that was- quite a bit. Uh, 
I did I enjoyed too. sitting back and listening to everything that this has happened with this. I mean, any sort of twist and turn. I, I have to I have to say this one has as many twists and turns in it as uh, WM3 for me. Like, just anything. The only difference I see between the two is he didn't have the uh, the mass. Uh, I don't want to say appeal that WM3 did, but like, do you understand when I say that? What I mean, like, he yeah, didn't have celebrities and the the uh, you know, he didn't have as many people on his side from a celebrity perspective as WM3. Correct, did. sure. Be, because he wasn't a darkly handsome, wicked, uh, misunderstood, angsty teenager. Touche. And he didn't have the HBO documentary made after him until after the fact. <laughs> well, the staircase was actually, they started production shortly after the murder. Oh, okay. And then um, they followed through the trial, and I think they aired it limited. Uh, on a limited basis in um, like on ID channel and, you know, stuff like that. And it was okay. actually, um, it was actually after the post, the, the post conviction reversal that the documentary Or, or leading up to the post-conviction reversal that the documentary came back. Right on. Okay. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and, and get this. You still there? Yeah, I'm still Done here. before, before yeah, blog... We don't want to hear you uh, start snoring or anything. I heard that yawn. <laughs> no, and I was worried about blog talk cutting us off. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, let's let's shut her down. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Uh, once again, I want to thank Michelle for joining us tonight. Uh, that was a thoroughly fascinating conversation, and I hope she's been bitten by the podcasting bug. Join us on Tuesday, April 20th, 2021, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 6, where we'll have an interview with Natalie Voss, three-time Eclipse Award-winning writer for the Pollock Report, human trainee of Jitterbug, and wife of a favorite horse racing guest, Joe Nevels. Natalie earned a bachelor's degree in equine science from the University of Kentucky and has written features, investigative articles, and profiles in her writing career. Her byline has appeared in the Pollock Report, Business Lexington Magazine, Chevy Chaser, South Cider, Chronicle of the Horse, The Horse Magazine, Blood, the Blood Horse, Quarter Horse News, American Race Horse, Acreage Life, Veterinary Practice News, Bird Talk, and Equine International, among others. 
We'll talk with Natalie about horse racing topics, thoroughbred aftercare, and her Eclipse Award-winning work. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.